Hello, 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 and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Gallup. Last week, we left off after the closure of Willard Drug Treatment Center in 2022. As promised, we're going to rewind a little bit and go back to the hospital's closure in 1995. For this episode, I'll be drawing a lot of information from the book, The Lives They Left Behind by Darby Penny and Peter Stastny. I encourage you to check this book out. Not only is it informative, but it really nicely captures the humanity of the patients who lived at the asylum. So come on in and get comfortable as we go behind the walls of Willard State Hospital. In the past two episodes, we've discussed how Willard was once the largest psychiatric hospital in the US. The sprawling hospital campus had many large and imposing buildings in addition to smaller ones. When Chapin House, the main building at Willard, was torn down in the 1980s, the campus was left without its centerpiece. And when the hospital shut down in 1995, the remaining patients were transferred to other facilities. In the meantime, employees were sent to search the buildings and salvage what could still be used before the buildings were condemned or repurposed for the Department of Corrections. And as I briefly mentioned last week, they stumbled upon treasure. And Penny and Stastny described the find like this, quote, Beverly Courtright and Lisa Hoffman, two local women who worked at Willard, knew the place intimately. They guided Craig Williams, a curator from the New York State Museum, to the spots that offered the most promise for finding important artifacts. Beverly remembered that there was something stashed under the roof of the sheltered workshop building. She led the group up the steep staircase to the attic and then to a door in a partition under pigeon-infested rafters. Once the door was pried open, they were struck by an awesome sight a beam of sunlight streaming down a central corridor that separated rows of wooden racks tightly filled with suitcases of all shapes and sizes, men's on the left side, women's on the right, alphabetized, labeled, and covered by layers of bird droppings, apparently untouched for a great many years, end quote. I hope it wasn't too misleading of me to say that they stumbled upon treasure. Some people would probably just see suitcases as more junk to throw out. In fact, Craig Williams, the muse museum curator, was given instructions to just keep 10 and throw the rest away. Fortunately, the trio saw more potential in this find and decided not to throw most of them out. But transporting the suitcases would raise additional concerns. After counting all the suitcases, there were 427 in total. That would take additional trucks and labor to transport them all. But that's exactly what they did. All 427 suitcases were wrapped in plastic and transported to the New York State Museum's warehouse. Of course, the suitcases had historical significance, but going through them would just have to wait. And wait they did. For three more years, the suitcases remained in the museum warehouse, just waiting for someone to open them. That's when in 1998, a group of archivists and curators, including Craig Williams, got together to plan an historical overview of mental health in New York State. 
It would be an effort that would span the next 10 years. Craig briefly mentioned the suitcases that had been recovered from Willard. One of the authors of The Lives He Left Behind is Darby Penny, who thought it would be important to highlight the lives of the psychiatric patients around the state. The people who had been marginalized, othered, forgotten. Darby was called the Director of Recipient Affairs, and her job was to serve as a liaison between current and former patients and policymakers. With the help of these patients, they could get a better sense of how various programs and policies could be changed and improved. The idea of finally going through the suitcases was given the green light, and Darby invited her colleague, psychiatrist Peter Stastny, the other author of the book, to join the project. Peter was also a documentary filmmaker, so he would surely be able to sort through the items in the suitcases with an organized and historical lens. Peter then invited photographer Lisa Rinsler to provide the creative backbone for the project. It would take another six years before their efforts resulted in an exhibit at the New York State Museum, but more on that in a later episode. Darby, Peter, and Lisa drove up to Willard after it had already been a drug treatment facility for several years. Some of the buildings were boarded up and abandoned. The others were used for the treatment center. They pulled up to the sheltered workshop building where Beverly Courtright had rediscovered the suitcases years earlier. Beverly was there again to guide them up to where the suitcases had been found. The racks were still clearly labeled men and women and lettered A through Z on each side. Not everything had been hauled away in 1995. Quote, an old lab coat hung from a nail, a strangely human shell overseeing it all. Haste had left behind several gutted suitcases, broken interiors of steamer trunks with Chinese motifs, their contents spilling out onto the wood floor, mingling with dust and snow, house keys, photographs, earrings, and belts, unquote. I just want to give a moment of appreciation for how lovely and descriptive the author's writing is. I was lucky to be able to listen to the audiobook book while it's still on Audible. Unfortunately, it's no longer there. And I listened to it all in a day. It was that captivating. And here's what they say about the remainder of their visit to Willard. Again, just quoting it verbatim because it's so lovely. Quote, we spent much time exploring and documenting the place where the suitcase, suitcase owners had spent their lives, clambered into basements, scaled several other pigeon infested attics and toured dozens of abandoned wards. We tried to hit some pins in the hospital's bowling alley, timidly traipsed through its morgue, and unearthed discarded old grave markers in the gully behind the burial grounds. But nothing else had anywhere near the potency of that attic. When we brought a bunch of empty suitcases back up to recreate the time when they were all stacked there, we realized that the space had been irrevocably violated once that door was opened. The spirits of the suitcase owners had been awakened without their consent, and we felt that we owed them out utmost effort to do them justice, end quote. It's a haunting and almost violent description, but somehow so reverent and lovely. The space had been irrevocably violated and the spirits had been awakened without their consent. 
the suitcases essentially serve as a tangible reminder of the actual people who'd lived there. It's like they were resting peacefully, undisturbed, until these historians came along. And it was now up to them to show them respect by giving them back their humanity. They returned to the museum warehouse in Rotterdam, New York, after their visit with a better understanding of what life may have been like for the owners of the suitcases. They began opening each suitcase. Some were empty, some just had a sewing kit or a pocket knife, but they all had stories to tell. Darby and Peter had access to the patient's names and hospital identification numbers, but it was difficult to match the patient information to the suitcases alone. With 427 total suitcases, it was unfeasible to do a deep dive into each of their lives. So they decided to narrow the scope and focus on about 25 people for further study. They said, quote, there were some obvious choices. The 18 pieces of luggage that belonged to one woman and included much of her furnishings, several oversized steamer trunks, foot lockers, wardrobes, upright lady Saratoga trunks, so named because they could hold enough clothes for an entire summer season in the resort town of Saratoga Springs, New York, and a good dozen doctor's bags, end quote. They remarked that some of the items in the suitcases looked like they were still in the same position as when they were packed whereas others had clearly been jostled around time and travel. The next step was to get access to their medical records, which they were able to do because it was part of a research project. The records, however, were in an abandoned building that had been contaminated by lead paint and asbestos. So the researchers had to don protective booties, masks, and gowns. <laughs> this must have felt like very strange archeology. span the records were in print, of course, and many had multiple volumes. Remember that many of the patients in Willard were hospitalized for decades, so their medical records would reflect that. Uh, at one of the hospitals where I worked, patients' records were stored in boxes in a humid basement. Some patients had one box for all their records and others took up an entire shelf. And all I can say is, thank goodness, for electronic medical records. As the researchers sifted through the patient's records, they were struck by certain details. An admissions photo of a smiling and cheerful woman, followed by another photo of the same woman in old age, looking haggard and broken. They noted patients' diagnoses of record, medications, various pieces of correspondence, and ultimately, post-mortem results. And the authors take a step back and seem to ask themselves, why are they taking the time to do all this? Why search through old dirty suitcases for patients who've been gone for decades? Especially when there are living patients to talk to and learn from. They answer this by pointing out that the suitcase owners were people with full rich lives before they came to the hospital and were essentially stripped of their identity. They became a number and a diagnosis, and their history was mostly taken from them. It's not to say that no staff members cared, certainly some did, but the patients became a problem that needed to be fixed. Today, many psychologists like me view patients through a trauma-informed lens, 
we try to make sense of what people have been through in their lives and how those experiences more than likely shape how they react to people in situations. It helps us understand when someone acts aggressively to a minor event or when they struggle to fall asleep at night. Suffice it to say that most clinicians probably didn't consider a patient's trauma in the earlier mid 20th century. In fact, many of the practices they use could have probably did worsen a patient's trauma. Something like straitjackets would be terrifying for someone who had been physically or sexually abused. Even if there were no present threat of harm, the jacket might make them feel like it would be impossible to, to defend themselves if needed. They're left vulnerable. Patients often get aggressive when they're scared. And so adding more fear on top of that is only exacerbating the problem and it takes longer for them to calm down. Today, one of the first things that we do with new patients is to sit down and have or try to have a conversation about what would help them feel safe if they get scared or if they start to get aggressive. Some patients recognize that if they get angry, they just need to go to their rooms and be alone for a while. Some patients can't be put into room seclusion because they have a history of self-harm and we wanna make sure that they can stay safe. Some patients, believe it or not, feel the safest in five-point restraints. They know there's going to be staff watching them to make sure they're okay. They know their peers can't hurt them and it gives them a chance to calm down if they've gotten overstimulated. Every person is different, so their treatment is going to be different. Now, as we've discussed in just about every episode of this podcast thus far, state hospitals in the early 20th century admitted far too many people who didn't need to be there. Mental health treatment was still in its infancy, or perhaps by the 1900s, maybe in its terrible twos. Like, everyone is loud and running around, nothing makes sense, everything's sticky for some inexplicable reason. It's... It's a terrible metaphor, I'm sorry. But the gist is that psychiatry was chaotic and they were learning a lot as they went along. And as a result, there were many patient casualties. People who would be diagnosed today with major depressive disorder or alcohol addiction would go on to spend decades locked up, away from their families and stigmatized. The researchers of the suitcase project, Darby, Peter, and Lisa, spent the next five years or so compiling items from the suitcases and matching them to former patient medical records. They were able to get a good sense of who each person was before they arrived in Willard State Hospital and what their experiences were like while they, were, while they lived there. The stories are compelling. I'll share some, but again, I encourage you to find the book to read more. And I'll begin their stories as they did with the tale of a quiet, but fascinating man who lived and worked at Willard State Hospital for 52 years. His name was Lawrence Marek, although other sources refer to him as Lawrence Mocha. So I'm just gonna call him Lawrence since everyone seems to agree with that. He was born in 1878 in the village of Sturzaverka in Austro-Hungarian Galicia. Galicia is modern-day southeastern Poland in western Ukraine. Its largest, cities was, largest city was uh, Krakow, Krakow. And Lawrence's father died when Lawrence was still quite young, leaving his mother alone to raise five children in poverty. 
from a psychological standpoint, we have several major traumas happening already in Lawrence's young life. The loss of his father, and we don't know if his death was unexpected, but I assume it was sudden, but again, we don't know that. Coping with his grief, growing up poor. It's not clear from records where Lawrence fell in the lineup of his siblings, but if he were the, one of the oldest, it's likely that he would have to take on work at a young age, which he did. So it's possible, and I'm speculating here, that he may have assumed his father's role in the family. And if that's true, that's a lot of responsibility for a young man. Lawrence ended up only going to school for three or four years before starting work. He became a licensed itinerant tanker, collecting scrap and repairing metal objects throughout Austria and Germany. Sometime around 1900, the authors noted, three events irrevocably changed Lawrence's life. First, we know that he received a head injury from a stone throw. And I'm curious to know more about this injury. Did he lose consciousness? Did he get medical attention? Doubt it. We now know that head injuries are very serious. Gone are the days of people saying, ah, just walk it off. Because we know that head injuries that go untreated can have horrific repercussions. So Lawrence got this head injury. He also began drinking alcohol heavily, which is not an uncommon response to the amount of trauma he'd experienced in his life. And his drinking caused him to start, quote, singing, whistling, and being generally noisy, end quote. And I mean, I do all that even with alcohol, without alcohol. So, but anyway, this seemed enough out of character for Lawrence that he was sent to the Grafenberg Asylum near Dusseldorf, Germany. And while he was in the asylum, he made loud accusations against himself for having sinned and, quote, prostrated himself in an attitude of prayer, end quote. He ended up staying at that asylum for less than a year. In 1902, he joined the Kaiser's army, although the authors weren't able to find information about the nature or length of his service. In 1907, Lawrence immigrated to the United States. He left Hamburg on the Kaiserin Augusta Victoria and passed through Ellis Island. He began working as a porter at the New York Tribune building on Park Row. Later, he worked as a window washer at Bellevue Hospital, where he lived in a dormitory for single male workers. It's unknown if his previous stay in an asylum was known to his employers, but I'm guessing not since he was able to find work easily. It's ironic and sad that his employment at Bellevue Hospital would also lead to the end of his freedom. In 1916, Lawrence caused a ruckus in the workers' dormitory, apparently singing and shouting and whistling in a boisterous manner. It's likely that he was intoxicated at the time, since he was taken to the alcoholic ward, quote-unquote, at Bellevue. Six days later, he was transferred to the psychiatric unit. During his admission interview with a psychiatrist, he told his doctor that he had taken classes at night school but didn't say much else about himself. An excerpt from its chart at, from Bellevue reads as follows, quote, he was confused, depressed, had self-accusatory ideas, and continually assumed attitudes of prayer. 
He must be urged to take nourishment, sleeps very poorly, requires medication and at times restraint, is very destructive and mischievous. At times he is flighty and elated, again, depressed and emotional, end quote. you have a medical background, or maybe even if you don't, you may know that this sounds a whole lot like alcohol withdrawal, which is very scary. Alcohol is one of only two substances where the withdrawals can kill someone. The other one, side note, is benzodiazepines like Xanax and Ativan. Withdrawing from other drugs can make somebody feel like they're dying and maybe even look like they're dying, but alcohol and benzos are really the only ones that absolutely require medical attention in order to detox. And Lawrence's, you know, quote, psychiatric symptoms sound a lot like alcohol withdrawal. Restlessness, sweating, loss of appetite, nausea, vomiting, agitation and irritability, anxiety, fast heart rate, disorientation, insomnia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera sounds pretty familiar. Now, if it's true that his primary concern was alcohol abuse and not psychosis, then he would have done better with a treatment program. But I don't know if those even existed back then outside of that alcoholic ward, whatever that was. Instead, he was transferred from Bellevue to Central Islip State Hospital on Long Island. His admitting psychiatrist wrote that Lawrence, quote, has for an undetermined period of time been hearing the voice of God and seeing visions of angels and other heavenly personages. He has numerous self-condemnatory ideas, end quote. Now, the problem with this is that what was diagnosed as hallucinations sounds a little like normative religious experiences. It can be really difficult to parse out psychosis from religion. If someone tells me that they've heard the voice of God, is that person tuned in with their faith or are they experiencing hallucinations? It could be either. In this case, the psychiatrist interpreted Lawrence's symptoms as psychosis. They didn't even factor in his previous head injury or his longtime alcohol abuse. Lawrence seemed to show improvement in the first few months at Central Islip. He was quiet and kept to himself. Then his behavior became erratic, and a chart note mentioned that in September of 1916, Lawrence suddenly jumped up from his seat during lunch, threw over his chair, and cleaned off the table by throwing dishes around the room. Several attendants were needed to restrain him. And I wonder a couple of things about this outburst. First, Perhaps he was experiencing some sort of mood episode that could be traced back to long-term effects of alcohol withdrawal. Or it could be possible that the reality of him remaining hospitalized was sinking in and he got upset. His main coping skill had been alcohol. And now that he didn't have it, perhaps he was having a hard time regulating his emotions. It's possible. Now, after his burst of, of aggression in September, 1916, Lawrence returned to his baseline and began working on the grounds crew. This appeared to prove his mood and overall physical activities, which was noted in his chart. Lawrence ended up spending two years of central isolate before being transferred to Willard State Hospital in May 1918. He was one of 25 men and 30 women 
being transferred to alleviate the overcrowding in New York City institutions. Lawrence had arrived at Willard with his suitcase, the same one that was found in the attic 77 years later. Penny and Satsney described his suitcase as brown leather that was soiled and deteriorating with a leather handle and a metal clasp closure. In it were one pair of men's black leather dress shoes with a three button closure flap, a blue shaving mug with black trim, a white shaving mug with Chester Hotel China stamped on the bottom in green print, a shaving brush with a metal handle, a shaving brush with a wooden handle, and heavy white elastic suspenders. And that was it. All of Lawrence's belongings that followed him to Willard, but that he never again used. For the first 12 years that he was at Willard, Lawrence remained reclusive. He occasionally got violent when someone bothered him. His charts noted that he was, quote, dull and morose, unsocial, inclined to be uncommunicative, end quote. It seems shocking from today's perspective that he would remain at the hospital for this long without having committed a crime and without overt symptoms of psychosis. And even in saying that, I'm reminded that having a severe mental illness is not a crime. I'm not sure how doctors justified him remaining at the hospital, but they did. It became clear to staff that Lawrence functioned best when he was engaging in physical work. In 1932, he was trusted enough to become a cleaner in the hospital superintendent's house. Seems like that would be a privileged position. While he was working, he was observed to be talking, quote, to imaginary voices, which he calls devils, end quote. Again, just from this excerpt, it's hard to tell if this is truly psychosis or if it's spiritual in nature. Many people refer to negative thoughts or religious interpretations of demons as devils. A theme throughout Lawrence's hospitalization appears to be that his own inner voice, his self-esteem as he will, was skewed negatively. This may be what he referred to as devils. Also, we have to recall that English is Lawrence's second language, and so he may be misinterpreting something. That's always a possibility. We just don't know. But all of this was interpreted as evidence of pathology. Lawrence worked all around the hospital doing various jobs. He was described as, quote, a good ward worker and goes out to do light work at different places about the institution. At present is out picking peas, end quote. He also engaged in painting and repairs. Remember that back in Galicia, he was a tinker and a repairman. During this time, any mention of religious preoccupation or religious concerns was absent from his records. Again, I'd love to know how they justified keeping him at the hospital. In 1937, Lawrence took over responsibility for the patient graveyard. Remember how I said in the last episode we'd get back to the cemetery? Here it is. Lawrence became the best darn cemetery worker he could be. He prided himself in his work. He dug graves by hand with a wooden frame to got as a guide to get him started. Employees later said that his grave looked too perfect to be dug by hand. In October 1945, someone stole his only coat. And this must have really upset Lawrence because he wrote it, this letter to Superintendent Dr. Kenneth Kyle. 
and I'm going to do my best to read it. The, the copy is not entirely clear, so I may misread or misinterpret his original words. And remember also, again, like I just mentioned, that Lawrence is a non-native English speaker. Quote, October 19th, 1945. Dr. Kyle, I hereby, Lawrence Marek, stop work yesterday afternoon. I ask you, doctor, to discharge me from Willard Institution. I am capable to do my living independent. I want also to get money for my work here. I make over eight years more than 500 graves myself and another heavy work all year round. I ask doctor to pre prepare my trunk, which I brought here from Central Islip. It is my own. I bought it in Dusseldorf. I am respectfully yours, end quote. I find this letter heartbreaking. He, he must know that there is likely no good reason to keep him at the hospital. And he certainly seems to recognize that his work is being exploited by going without pay. If it's true that he dug at least 500 graves over the course of eight years, that averages to at least one to two graves per week. That is backbreaking work. And in 1945, he was already 67 years old. By the way, Dr. Kyle never responded to Lawrence's letter. Remember that the 1940s was the height of institutionalization. There were thousands of other patients at the hospital and Lawrence did good work, so why bother? Lawrence actually built himself a little shack near the cemetery where he stayed in the warm summer months. And this seems amazing to me. I mean, he's living outside off the wards with probably plenty of opportunities to leave, but he stays. Something kept him there, whatever it was, even if it was just the possibility that if he escaped, he would be found and then would never have a chance of getting out. Even today, I sometimes think about that. You know, the main incentive we use at the hospital to keep patients violence-free and engaged in treatment is the carrot of getting out. It's very powerful. And Lawrence was known by everyone at Willard, or so it seemed. He was always around in his heavy rubber boots and hip waders, and he always seemed to get his way. In fact, a former director of nursing said, quote, he had seniority over the employees, the patients, and everyone else, end quote. He was the kind of guy who took direction from his boss, but ignored everybody else. Rules loosely applied to Lawrence over the years. Although the hospital had a strict policy that patients would only be served during regular meal times, Lawrence would go to the main kitchen and staff would feed him whatever time it happened to be. Lawrence's medical charts show consistent patterns of staff observation as the years went on. On April 18, 1951, he was described as, quote, a bony elderly man, still robust and in good physical health. He is quiet about the ward and rather reclusive. He digged over 900 graves in 14 years, he said, and likes to be by himself. On August 10th, 1955, this 77-year-old white male patient is careless of his appearance, but clean in his habits. He does not believe he is or ever was mentally ill. On the ward, the patient is rather reclusive, he may be hallucinated, but not to a marked degree. 
on January 16, 1961. Good health, fairly tidy, cooperative, relevant, logical, well-oriented, good worker, memory fairly good, judgment and insight fair. This is an elderly patient who is in good physical health. He is hard of hearing, but works well. He doesn't consider himself mentally ill and denied hallucinations or delusions. He is fully oriented and gives good information about his life. He talks pleasantly and could carry on a conversation. On November 18, 1963, this 85-year-old patient, I'm going to start that over again just for emphasis, this 85-year-old patient is an excellent worker in the cemetery. <laughs> He's still working at 85 years old. I mean, on the one hand, if he wants to and enjoys it, great. It's keeping him active. Perhaps if he stopped, he would slow down for good. But still, it kind of makes me sad to think of an 85-year-old man digging multiple graves per week without pay. Anyway, all right, quote, he has just grown old in this hospital. He has no delusional trends and denies sense deceptions. He shows no psychopathology whatsoever, but after 47 years of hospitalization, seems to have no other chance but to remain in the hospital, and he actually does like it. General health is good, medication, none. Oh, did I forget to mention that Lawrence wasn't on medications all these years? You'd think that would be the giveaway that perhaps he didn't need to be at the hospital for decades, but that line that psychiatrist Dr. Hug, I love the name Dr. Hug, I want a Dr. Hug, but hugs could cure anything. Uh, just, it, this grieves me. He shows no psychopathology whatsoever, but after 47 years of hospitalization, seems to have no other chance but to remain at the hospital. And the sad truth is that he's probably right. Had Lawrence been treated for his alcohol addiction back in 1916, he probably would have been able to live his life in the community. Instead, his alcohol addiction was pathologized and misinterpreted as psychosis. Remember that in 1963, the Community Mental Health Act passed and hospitals were rushing to discharge patients. Except for Lawrence. He was too old by this time. Where would he go? Who would take care of the cemetery? And the tragedy is that Lawrence's work that he prided himself in was probably what kept him at Willard for so many years. On January 19th, 1965, patient continues to be the well-liked, hardworking, quite original old man, walking with his 87 years in rain or snow every day to his job in the cemetery. He is always very pleasant and friendly, and possibly because of the language difficulties mainly, not associating with others. He's always cheerful, playing his harmonica, however, mostly for himself and his shanty. Physically, the patient is in excellent health for his age. Blood pressure 120 over 60, medication none. On October 16, 1968, Lawrence's psychiatrist wrote, this 90-year-old patient has been in this hospital since 1918 and had been treated for schizophrenia paranoid type. He has adjusted himself well to the hospital routine. He is cooperative and friendly to the nursing staff. He still makes a daily trip to the cemetery where he's worked for years. His physical condition appears to be satisfactory to his advanced age. 
He eats and sleeps well. Patient does not require any medication. Two weeks after this note was written, Lawrence Marek died quietly in his sleep at 90 years old. He was buried in an anonymous numbered grave in the cemetery that he attended so dependably for so many years. After Lawrence's death, the cemetery wasn't tended to very often. I'll include pictures in the Facebook group and on Instagram that show the difference between the cemetery was when Lawrence was caretaking during the 1960s and what remained of the cemetery grounds around 2000. Lawrence's legacy probably would have died along with him if it weren't for the researchers finding his suitcase in 1995 and learning more about him years later. Seneca County historian Walter Gable noted that in 2011, a local woman named Colleen Spellacy founded the Willard Cemetery Memorial Project. She and other members appealed to the New York State Office of Mental Health to allow the project to erect a memorial with the names of the Willard patients buried in the cemetery. As for Lawrence, a special memorial was dedicated in his memory on my birthday, May 16th, 2015. Gable pointed out that Lawrence's memorial stands under the shade of a poplar tree near the site of the shack in which he lived. And I think this circles back to the reason why Darby Penny and P Peter Stastny were compelled to tell these stories. We learn a lot about how people think of the living by how they honor the dead. There were 5,776 patients buried in the Willard Cemetery and only a few in the Civil War section got their names attached to their headstones. Everyone else was just given a number and forgotten. If we really do value people's lives, we should tell their stories. In honor of Lawrence, if you or someone you know is struggling with an addiction to alcohol, I encourage you to seek help. Remember that if you or that person drinks heavily, it may not be safe to quit cold turkey, they may need medical intervention. For resources in the United States, you can call SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at 1-800-662-HELP. So that's 1-800-662-4357. Or check out the National Institute of Health's website about alcohol abuse at www.niaaa.nih.gov. That's N-I-A-A-A, three A's, dot N-I-H, dot gov. For international listeners, check out your country's website for Alcoholics Anonymous or Smart Recovery for additional resources. And thank you so much for listening, as always. We'll be back next week with another suitcase and another story, this time of a nurse who ended up a patient. And remember... Do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening to Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. Once again, I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Gallup. Cover image is by Christopher Payne. Check out my website at behindthewallspodcast.buzzsprout.com. Follow the podcast and learn more on Facebook at Behind the Walls Podcast and Instagram at Behind the Walls Pod. For questions or recommendations, email me at BehindTheWallsPodcast at gmail.com. You can find new episodes every Monday on Amazon Podcast.
Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find and listen to the show, and I would be so grateful. Please stay tuned for more episodes of Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. Until next time.